Good morning. Welcome to Bible study at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. This morning we're going to be focusing on the lessons for this upcoming Sunday, as our pastors always do. It gives us the opportunity to, as the old collect of the church used to say, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this word this week as we prepare for worship next Sunday. The lessons for next Sunday is, are the lessons for the uh, fifth Sunday after the Epiphany, Series B. Let's begin with a word of prayer, the collect of the day for next Sunday. O Lord, keep your family, the church, continually in the true faith, that relying on the hope of your heavenly grace, we may ever be defended by your mighty power. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Old Testament lesson for next Sunday is from the book of the prophet Isaiah, the 40th chapter. You might remember that the 40th chapter of Isaiah is a key chapter in all of Scripture. We hear it repeatedly throughout the church year. We heard it on the second Sunday of Advent, for example. We hear it as we talk about the, the ministry of John the Baptizer. And once again, it comes to our attention. Let's put this passage in its proper context, beginning in um, chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort. Comfort. A double load of comfort for my people, says your God. And notice already an emphasis on says and speak and a voice and the word. The opening here is all about the word of God intended to bring comfort to God's people. And so it, it continues, verse 3, a voice cries as it calls us to prepare the way of the Lord. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verses 6 through 8, a voice cries. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. But, and that is a, a defiant but, grass withers, flower fades at the word of God, but the word of our God will stand forever. The Lutheran reformers inscribed the, the initials VDMA. On all of their writings, in all of their seals, in all of the writings that they did, VDMA, which stands for Verbum Deus Mana in Eterni, which stands simply for the word of our God stands forever. And that's an important verse in, in this context. It's a, an important verse for understanding the rest of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Despite what's going on in the world around you, despite the fact that the Babylonians are in control in Jerusalem and the temple lay in ruins, despite the fact that there is no hope of you possibly ever going home, the word, the word of the Lord stands forever. Verses 9 through 20 say, Behold your God. 
at the greatness of your God. He, he is mighty. He is the creator of all things. But not only is he mighty, he is also gracious. And he deals with us like a shepherd. So we come to verse 18. Verse 18 says, To whom will you compare your God? You want to compare him to an idol? The Babylonians were all about making their idols. They created their idols. And, and so Isaiah begins to show the, the foolishness of this. We think of God above and beyond everything. What kind of a God is it that a human being can make and even needs a chain to hold it up? Our God isn't like that. Our God is beyond all of that. And so verse 18 asks, to whom will you compare him? You're going to compare him to an idol? There is no comparison. And so the point of these first 20 verses have to do with the word of God coming true. Don't be afraid. God's got your situation well under control. Trust his word. And so we come to the text for today, Isaiah 40, verses 21 through 31. It begins with four questions, which asks the Israelites to think about their faith and how important their faith is in this time of disaster and calamity. Have, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the very foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Here's the challenge. A challenge to those who were making their own gods. You ought to know. It ought to be obvious. Our God has revealed himself to all mankind in his creation from the very beginning from the foundations of the earth, there is what we call a natural knowledge of God. You, you simply need to look at the complexity, for example, of a human body and how one or two degrees of temperature can, can, can change our, our, the way we feel, can change our health. And how one small aspirin, which we would claim to be a, a very simple medication can ease our pain. We are put together in such a magnificent way that anybody, anybody ought to know that there is a God. You look at the vastness of the universe, and once again, there, there is a divine creator behind all of this. Everybody needs to know, everybody should recognize that there is a God. And so Isaiah proclaims who this God is. He is the creator. He was there at the very foundation. You can look down and, and see. You can look up at the stars. He's above the skies. And he's distinct from his creation. He looks down upon people and they're, they're like grasshoppers on the earth. 
Our God is above and below and beneath and around. He is distinct from everything else. Verses 23 and 24, he brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Even the greatest, the most powerful rulers of all time are as nothing in comparison to him. He controls history. He controls political events in the world. He's not like the deists God. Remember the deists compared God to a divine watchmaker. A God who created the world and built into it a sense of order and sent it spinning into, earth, into the universe and a step back and watches it all unfold. What Isaiah is proclaiming is that in the midst of all of the political events, all of the world powers, our God remains involved. He cares about what's going on. He's directing what's going on. And so Isaiah claims he blows on them and they're destroyed. In Exodus chapter 15, it talks about God blowing. It's the song of Moses. As he describes what God did to this Egyptian superpower, he blew and the waters of the Red Sea parted. And his people passed through in safety. He blew again and the waters came piling in on top of them. He destroyed the superpower of the day for the sake of his people. Now Babylon was the superpower. And so what kind of a, a God do we have? A God who remains in control even of this great superpower. The point once again is trust his word. He speaks to you the truth. So now God asks the same question that we heard in verse 18. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? And he's talking about the stars here. Who created the stars? Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name? By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Look up at the stars. Remember, the Babylonians were astrologers who believed that the stars and the planets controlled what's going on here on earth. Look at the stars. Our God created them. It's been estimated that there is somewhere around 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And that there may be as many as 100 billion galaxies like ours out there in the vastness of space. What kind of a God is ours? He knows 
every one of those stars. He calls them by name. He brings them out. Don't believe what the Babylonians are saying. Don't put your trust in astrology or, or in their gods. Our God controls all of that. Human beings have this tendency, a tendency when we don't understand to take things into our own hands and to make up ideas, philosophies on our own, and that always leads to the same problem. It's one of idolatry. So God says, who are you going to compare me to? What kind of God have you created? The stars, they don't control. These idols that you made, they're nothing. To whom will you compare me? And all of your arrogance and all of the idolatry, who's a God like me? Trust my word. Verses 27 to 31. Why do you say, O Jacob... And speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. God's people were complaining. What happened to your promises, God? You said you loved us. You said you'd care for us. You said that a king from David's line would always sit on the throne. And now Jerusalem's destroyed, and the temple is destroyed, and we're sitting here in Babylon as, as slaves and exiles. What happened to your promises? Had God forgotten? Did God really care? Did God love them? Or was God too weak to do anything about their situation? But... Once again, it's one of those defiant buts. But our God does have a plan, and he keeps his word. The rest of the book of Isaiah hangs on this verse. It unfolds what God's plan is. It continues to reveal his love and his faithfulness and the fact that his promises are going to come true. And so verse 28 goes back to the original question. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Point is, we have more than just natural knowledge of God. Our God has revealed himself to us. Our God speaks to us. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow faint or grow weary. He has power to do what he says. His understanding is unsearchable. It's beyond our ability to understand. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Beyond our understanding, 
beyond our power and might. The young men, the, the strongest of the warriors, they might grow weary. They might not go, continue to go onward in battle. But those who wait on the Lord will never grow weary. And so he makes these three comparisons. Picture an eagle soaring in the skies. Wings spread, catching the updrafts, effortlessly floating above those who wait on the Lord. Those who put their trust in his word soar like the eagles. Or imagine the long-distance runner. I don't know how they do it. If I go a quarter mile, I'm, I'm panting like crazy for, for the next gasp of air. But these marathon runners seem to go on and on and on effortlessly. And so he says, those who wait on the Lord are like those long-distance runners. Don't know where the strength comes. It comes from the Lord. Or the man on a long journey. Day after day, he trudges on and on and on until he reaches his destination. How can he do it? Something drives him on. Those who wait on the Lord are like an eagle, like a long-distance runner, like a man on a long journey. God will wield his power for the sake of his people Despite all of the harsh realities of the world around you, simply take God at his word. For as verses 7 and 8 of chapter 40 say, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Have you any thoughts about these, these wonderful words from Isaiah? It's all about the word and how we as God's people can trust that word, no matter what we see going on around us. I, I fear sometimes that, that we Christians are going through a difficult time. There are those who say, you know, it's a tough time to be a Christian. It seems that the world is stacked against us. We see all these other religions competing against our faith. There are people who, who claim to be spiritual but not religious. They believe in some God but not necessarily the God who's revealed himself in Scripture. We wonder sometimes about the court rulings that seem to be going against us Christians. We're we going to be able to survive? Or as, as they were complaining, where's our God? Didn't he make promises to us? Shouldn't our lives be easy? Where's, where is God in the midst of all that's happening today? The word of Isaiah speaks clearly to our times. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word, the word of our God remains forever. Any thoughts or questions?
Let's move on then to the epistle lesson from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 through 27. And here you'll, you'll recognize that this chapter comes right after the readings for today. The reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, which focuses on meat offered to idols. And the real issue has to do with giving offense. In Paul's time, there were those new Christians, those converts, who still still held on to some of their old beliefs. They had come out of paganism where they went to the temple and all of the meat came from the temple worship. Now, could they eat meat or couldn't they eat meat if that meat had been offered to an idol? And so there were some Christians who were claiming their Christian liberty, saying, we can eat anything because idols don't really exist. And there were other Christians who were saying, we can't do that, because that was offered to a false god. And it was offending them and it causing them to stumble. And so St. Paul is dealing with this issue, and the real issue is not meat or not meat. It was the giving of offense. So St. Paul picks up on that theme. In in chapter 9, verse 1, he begins, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Don't I have certain rights? And the rights that he begins talking about here is about, what about the right to a salary? As a preacher, don't I have a right to a salary? And furthermore, don't I have a right to have a wife? All of the other apostles have wives, and their wives travel with them. Are Barnabas and I the only ones who don't have wives and can't take them along with us? As as a preacher of the gospel, Paul was so concerned that he not give offense are so concerned that he, he not allow anyone to, to say that they were exploited, that he was in this just for the money. He said, I set my rights all aside. I didn't take a salary. I, I worked as a tent maker all those years so that nobody could make that claim. And if it's about meat that's being offered to idols, I'd rather starve to death than ever eat meat. For the sake of the gospel... And so our text begins in verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. Paul says he can't boast about his preaching. I used to read pastors' information forms where they evaluated their ministries. And oftentimes, or in every one of these, they were asked, What is your strength in ministry? And the number one strength on absolutely every one of them was my preaching. I'm a great preacher. 
We know it's not so. But every pastor sees himself as a great preacher. St. Paul says, I can't boast about my preaching. Probably not because he wasn't a good preacher. What he's saying is, I can't take any credit for this. He says, I didn't do it voluntarily. If I did it of my own will, I could take some credit for this. But I didn't do it of my own will. I didn't do it to get any kind of reward, any pleasure, any satisfaction, any financial gain because of my preaching. But he says, necessity was laid upon me. Older versions used to translate these words, I am compelled to preach the gospel. Now, the word compulsion in, in most of our cultures has a, a negative connotation, doesn't it? We talk about a, um, an, an obsessive compulsive disorder when a person can't help himself, but he goes to the door and he locks it again and again and again and again to make sure that the door is locked. He does it beyond his control. He's being driven by something else to make sure that that door gets locked again and again. Or a person is compelled to play, pay blackmail money, ransom, in order for, uh, to protect his reputation. We hear of that kind of stuff going on right now throughout the, the, the Hollywood and the political world where people are being paid hush money. They are compelled to do so. Compulsion always, in our society anyway, seems to have a negative connotation. And so there, there are those people who, who feel that they are compelled by their desires to sin. They can't help themselves. It's beyond their control. St. Paul says that he was compelled to preach Christ. Did Jesus back him into a corner so that Paul had no choice but to preach the gospel? Did Jesus threaten him with condemnation if he didn't preach the gospel? Now, Paul was compelled to preach the gospel because of Christ's love for him and his love for Christ. On the road to Damascus, Paul had this experience. You remember he was the Pharisee going to destroy the Christians. When the Lord Jesus stopped him dead in his tracks and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Stop it. I've got a job. A job for you to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. What was it that compelled Paul? It was this vision of Jesus who turned his life around completely. He couldn't help himself but preach the gospel. He claims he had a stewardship, a stewardship of the gospel. Now, sometimes we call pastors stewards of the mysteries of God, and that's truly what they are. They're not the owners of the gospel. Paul didn't see himself as an owner. But this precious treasure was entrusted to him. 
Not for his sake, but for the sake of the master. Not for Paul's sake, but for the sake of those who would hear. As a faithful steward, he was compelled to use the treasure entrusted to him for the reason for which it was given, to share the love of Jesus. So listen to how he describes his ministry in verses 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as outside the law, not being outside of the law, but under the law of Christ, he's saying, that I might win some, those outside the law. The weak... I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in the blessings. St. Paul was one of the freest men of his time. He was a Roman citizen with all the rights and privileges of Roman citizenship. Paul was a Christian with the freedom in the gospel, free from the condemnation of the law, free from sin and death and hell. He was the freest of all people, and yet he claims that he became a slave. He had made himself a slave to Christ Jesus. One of Martin Luther's most important writings was a, a little book called The Freedom of the Christian, in which he, he lays out the theme that as a Christian we are the freest of all people, slaves to none, but as a Christian we're also slaves to all. The world really doesn't understand this concept of Christian liberty and Christian slavery, when they, they look at us Christians, they see our religion as, as nothing more than a set of laws. You Christians have to go to church every Sunday. You Christians have to give money week after week. You Christians can't cuss, you can't drink, you can't smoke. You Christians have a set of rules by which you live. Is that how you see Christianity? Set of rules and regulations? Slavery? We're the freest of all people. Free because Jesus has set us free. The real issue is, who do we serve? Do we serve sin and death and hell? Are we slaves? That's what we heard in today's sermon. How this world is controlled by the evil one. They think they run this show. 
But Jesus invaded this world and showed his power, his authority over the evil ones. In the second article, uh, the explanation in the catechism, Martin Luther talks about how Jesus has redeemed me. He set me free from sin and death and hell. He purchased and won me so that I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer under the evil one's control. And he makes this stunning conclusion. After all, Jesus has redeemed me, purchased and won me so that, and here's the key words, so that I might be his own, and live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness and innocence and blessedness. Does that sound like slavery to you? That's the joy of a Christian life. That's the joy of our salvation. We're not slaves at all. We're the freest of all people. And yet, and yet, we've made ourselves slaves. We're the ones who get down on our knees and wash the feet. We feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick, because Jesus calls us to do those things. That's the stewardship that's laid upon each one of us as a Christian. Free and yet slaves of all. That's not a matter of, of a negative connotation. That's not the kind of compulsion that the world thinks of. That's the compulsion of being his own. And so, St. Paul says, to the Jews... I became like a Jew. To those under the law, those were the Gentile converts. They're sometimes called the God-fearers. They, they were attracted to all of the Jewish ceremonial laws, and they, they felt they needed to keep them. And so Paul says, I became like one of them. To those outside the ceremonial laws, I became like a Gentile. To the weak, to those who are easily offended, I became weak. So in chapter says, I'm not going to eat meat offered to idols. I have become all things to all people. Is that being wishy-washy? Can we be all things to all people? St. Paul, Lutheran Church, all things to all people? And we hear, I'm, I'm picking a little, okay? Just bear with me. I'm not being negative about our church. I'm just picking, all right? What about contemporary worship? Can we be contemporary worship for those who are contemporary worship? Can, can we change our doctrine for the sake of those who don't believe as we believe? Can we, we water things down? to a, a basic common denominator, if you believe Jesus, you're okay? Is that what Paul is saying here? Let's be wishy-washy? Where can we go? Where can't we go? Paul says it's all about the gospel. Think of our missionaries who 
travel throughout the world. And they go into a new culture, for example. Um, years ago on Sunday evenings, there, there used to be a show in which two guys went to live with the Mech tribe. I've never heard of them. Somewhere like Australia or the Philippines or somewhere. But these people were backward, completely different than any culture we've ever had. They went into this culture and they didn't know anything. And so at first they had to be treated like little babies. They didn't know the language. They didn't know how to, to feed themselves. They didn't know what the native foods were. They didn't know how to dress. They didn't know how to socialize in the, in the culture. And so they began at the very beginning learning what the Mech people are all about. Now, they weren't missionaries. Their goal was just to understand the culture. But how does a missionary function in the world today if they're sent to a foreign culture, a foreign country, and now they've got to preach the gospel to those folks? How did Paul operate when he uh, evangelized the Gentiles? Remember the story of when he went to Mars Hill? And he, he pulled out his knowledge of Greek and Roman philosophy, theology, poetry. He didn't talk to the Jews the same way he talked to the, the, the philosophers on Mars Hill. Paul looked for common ground. Where can we start? Where's... What do we have in common that I can use in order to preach the gospel? And so when he lived and worked among Jewish people, oh, he obeyed all the ceremonial laws. He didn't want to offend anyone. He wanted to use that and the Old Testament to help them understand who Jesus is. And when he was among these God-fearers, well, he, he was a Roman citizen. Surely he could, he could use his Roman citizenship and he could use his Jewish background to help tell them about Jesus. And when, when he was strictly among the Gentiles, eating meat wasn't an issue. He could join right in. When he was with the weak folks who might be offended by the eating of meat, he didn't eat meat. He says he became all things to all people in order to win some for the sake of the gospel. What does that say to us today? What, is, what does it say to you who live on Main Street of whatever town and you're surrounded by neighbors? I live right next door to a, a man who's a Sikh. What does it say to me about how I Minister to my Sikh neighbor. What does it say to you about the way you deal with the, the young couple next door that maybe never ever goes to church? What does it say to you about uh, the people across the street who, who may be religious fanatics? Oh, maybe they have Bible study in their house. Maybe they have... They do miracles and, and uh, speak in tongues across the street. How do you as a Christian relate to that kind of culture? 
so many people all around you. Really makes you stop and think, doesn't it? How am I living my life today in order to proclaim the gospel to others? Paul continues in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul used an illustration from the Greek Olympics. Corinth was just about 10 miles away from where the Olympics were held. Corinth was known for its, its Isthmian Games. Everybody knew how athletes trained. It requires a great deal of self-discipline and strict training and strenuous exertion. And why did athletes do this? In order to win a prize, a little bit of fame and recognition, or maybe a wreath made of laurels or olive or sometimes even parsley. Paul says in the very same way, I need to discipline myself. I need to put forth the very same strenuous effort in order to save others and not disqualify myself. There, brothers and sisters, is the question for us today. You exercise self-discipline? Are you in training? Do you put forth strenuous exertion for the sake of the gospel, for winning your neighbors, for the sake of the kingdom? Think and pray about these things this week. The gospel for next Sunday is Mark 1, 29 to 39, a continuation of today's lesson. We spent, I think, three or four weeks now in Mark chapter 1. And notice how fast things happen in the book of Mark. It begins with the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and immediately things begin to happen. Jesus was baptized, and immediately the heavens opened, and the voice spoke, and the Spirit descended. Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There is the key message. So Jesus called Peter and Andrew, James and John, and immediately they left everything and followed Jesus. He went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath day, he was teaching, and with authority, Jesus immediately healed a man with an unclean spirit, as we heard about today. Immediately, his fame spread throughout the region. So far, this, this word immediately occurs, I, I think it's seven, maybe eight times already, in the first 20 verses of, of uh, St. Mark's Gospel. You sense the urgency? An urgency about being a Christian. An urgency about the kingdom of God. It's here, it's now, it's at hand. And, and Mark wants to make that absolutely clear. 
There is an urgency about our faith. There is an urgency about our mission. Let's go. Verses 29 through 31 then, immediately, Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Those of you who have been to Capernaum know that the ancient synagogue ruins are probably less than 75 yards away from the house that it's reported to be Peter's house. The scene ends. The, the demons are driven out. Immediately he's on his way to Simon's house. And surely the new disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, have some questions about what they just witnessed. And immediately, they recognize that Peter's mother-in-law is ill. And immediately, they tell Jesus about it. Now the question is, he did this in the synagogue. He did it so he might help other people. He might reveal his, his majesty, his power, so that lots and lots of people would believe in him. But did he have time for one woman to do something in private just for them. And immediately, Jesus took her by the hand and lifted her up. He cared for her. Remember that St. Mark was probably a traveling companion of Peter's. Peter never forgot this incident. It wasn't a, a big deal to anybody else, but it was a big deal to Peter. Jesus cared, cared even about him and his mother-in-law. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he wouldn't permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So the Sabbath was over. People were free to move about. They'd heard about what had happened in the synagogue earlier that morning, and now the whole town is gathered outside of Simon Peter's door. And they're bringing people who had physical illnesses and those who were oppressed by demons, people who were clearly opposed to the kingdom of God. Jesus healed many who were sick, because he has power over the physical world. He drove out demons because he has power over the spiritual world. He didn't allow those demons to speak. That's always interesting. Why didn't he? He want people to go out and tell the good news of what they just witnessed. But you see, all people were already getting the wrong understanding of who he was and why he'd come. It wasn't just about driving out demons. It was about the kingdom. The kingdom of God was at hand. God's rule in the world. It was about the word which he was sent to proclaim. 
And so he refused to let the demon speak lest they give a wrong testimony. But they knew exactly who he was and they knew why he had come. And they lived in terror of his power and his authority. Must have been a big night for everybody. And you would think after a day like that, Jesus would have been exhausted. But verses 35 through 39... Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. He got up early. It must have been his custom. He went out to a a desolate place, a solitary place, where he could be alone for some quiet time with his father to pray. There are only two other times in the Gospel of Mark where it mentions that Jesus prayed. The one was immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. He needed to spend some time with his father at that point. He just, he just performed what some people consider his greatest miracle. 5,000 plus people were fed. And they were eager to, to take him now and make him their king because he could provide for all their physical needs. But that wasn't why Jesus had come. And so he needed some time to to be with his father, probably to talk about the mission, the kingdom of God and why he had come. The other time, of course, was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we know that there Jesus prayed, Father, if there is any other way to bring about the kingdom, if there is any way to bring the salvation of all people, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, thy will be done. Now, very early in his ministry, it was the same kind of conversation. Jesus needed to be alone in a solitary place early in the morning to talk with his father, to talk about, I believe, the mission. Was this why I had come? To go to the synagogues and drive out demons? Was this why I came so that people might gather around me, large crowds needing my help? Or is there something more important about the mission? I think here we, we also see part of, part of our own struggle, maybe. I, I don't know of anybody, and I, obviously I talk to a lot of people, but do you know anybody who's satisfied with their prayer life? Who prays the way they'd like to pray? You, know, you hear stories of Martin Luther spending hour upon hour in prayer. I confess, I don't spend hour upon hour in prayer. Sometimes at night I fall asleep before my prayers are ended. My devotional life isn't all that great. Jesus needed time early in the morning in a solitary place to 
talk with his father. Well, Peter led the search party because everybody was looking for Jesus. And it's likely that Peter had an idea where he'd find Jesus. This was apparently his custom. And he seems to engage in, a, in, a, in an argument with Jesus. Lord, everybody's looking for you. What are you doing out here? And Jesus argues back. There's something more important. What did the disciples still need to learn about his mission? Was it really about driving out demons and healing the sick? Or was his primary mission to preach the gospel? Remember Mark said earlier, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. I believe that during this time of prayer, the Father helped him focus on what he was sent to do. The mission. So Jesus says, no, let's go. Let's go. Let's put this into action. And so he began his first preaching tour of all the synagogues in Galilee. And people flocked to, to hear him. And to hear the good news of a father's love and the forgiveness of sins. Let's go. Those are the key words for us this week. As uh, we think about our mission. Why has God put you here? What is it that God has called you and me to do. Let's go. Let's go with urgency. The kingdom's at hand. I believe that's uh, most of the time that we have for this morning, but I, I would be willing to take a few questions if you had any. Seeing none, then receive God's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.